I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. Up until the day the child Cephalina came into our lives, Mrs. Tetty Brandling was a happy, sloppy woman who snuffled and wheezed her way through the day's business with good grace. The change in her was at first subtle, but I am certain a shadow fell across her soul at the appearance of Cephalina and my dogged insistence on helping that child. That was a passage from the opening of The Child Cephalina by Rebecca Lloyd, who is my guest on today's episode. The book was published by Tartarus Press in 2019, and the readings are by Luke Younger. I'll read to you from the book's blurb. Rebecca Lloyd's superb gothic novel explores friendship, obsession and the uncanny in teeming mid-Victorian London. At its heart is a tale of human relationships threatened by an unknowable force. From the very first, the child Cephalina brought conflict in the otherwise peaceful, if eccentric, household at number 12 Judd Street. Robert's fascination with her was instant, but he could never decide if this 11-year-old was innocent and lonely, or clever and manipulative. It worried him. His encounters with her were both enchanting and unnerving, All the while his devotion to her was growing, until in the end nothing could save him from a fate he would never have believed could be his. Join me over the next hour while I speak to Rebecca Lloyd about her fascinating portrait of a man torn apart by desire, manipulated by forces that may be beyond human understanding. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Sherd's Podcast. My name is Sam Pullum and today I'm delighted to have as my guest Rebecca Lloyd whose novel The Child Cephalina was published at the end of last year by Tartarus Press. Welcome to the show Rebecca. Thank you. It's nice to have you here. So the first thing I read by you was a story the monster Orgorp from uh, Seven Strange Tales which I enjoyed enormously it's another of your collections from Tartarus Press and that's uh, an historical tale set in the 18th century and in in fact pretty much everything I've read by you has a has an historical setting these days yeah oh so that was that was different in the past Yeah, yeah yeah I mean I stumbled upon history if you like and realised that there was so many... Because really what I'm fascinated in is, is the peculiarity of humans and all their their weirdness. I mean, I'm just an absolute seeker after the weird. Mm-hmm. And if you look, if you, you know, if you read a lot and you read back in history, you can find the most unbelievably strange things going on. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, it's not that I'm actually interested in history itself per se, but I'm, all my material is coming out of there at the moment. I mean, I don't look much around myself in my modern, in the world I live in. Mm. I'm not really, uh, you know, too busy, <laughs> too busy. <laughs> so, so do you find that the weird and the past or maybe even ghosts and the past are part and parcel of the same thing for you? I'm, I'm reminded of something that uh, Vernon Lee said about this. She says, that's the thing, the past, the more or less remote past, uh, that's the place to get our ghosts from. And I wonder if, for you, it was something akin to that. Yeah, sort of. But I have written stories in which apparitions or ghosts appear in much more modern times, in the 1930s. I mean, you know, I, I hop about. I think I'm a bit like a, a kind of a crow or something on a rubbish heap. <laughs> <laughs> to go go from one thing to the other but it depends entirely upon the um what what material i'm seeking out i mean in, in orgorp the question in orgorp is uh, what really is a monster 
You know, mm. is it the man who treats his servants badly and jumps on them? Or is it a woman who's got holes in her face because she's putting arsenic on it? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you remember that story, that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah, sure. In the Child Cephalina, which is set in London in the middle of the 19th century. Well, you're originally from London, is that right? No, not really. I mean, no. I've lived in London, but I've lived in Africa and I've lived in other places. And I was born in New Zealand and I was brought up in Australia and I travel a lot. Oh, I see, so, I see. I, I wouldn't really be able to say I was from anywhere. Okay, okay. So it's not a particular home for you then, London? Well, it, it was a home. The East End of London was a home for me for 10 or so years. I'm not very good at time, so I can never give accurate um, questions about time. Like how many years did you live Oh, a good while. I lived there a good while. <laughs> <laughs> probably a decade, yeah, probably. After I come back from um, Africa, what I wanted to do was to go to, you know, because the other aspect of, of my, my work was uh, actually working with poverty mm. and disease. So I needed to be somewhere where I hadn't been taken away from poverty. So the East End was a good bet for that. Would, would you tell our listeners briefly what you're referring to with your work? Um, I was a medical parasitologist. That means I studied in the School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine. And really, people like us, I think we're quite rare these days, but we are fundamentally biologists and our interest is parasites, human parasites. And then in order to uh, actually do any work with human parasites, you have to go to parts of the world where they proliferate in their many millions, you know, and Africa's one of them. When we spoke last week, you were uh, regaling me with some quite grisly aspects of, <laughs> of your work. <laughs> uh, and you looked it up, didn't I did you? look you it up. up. I doubted cyst. Yeah. I... <laughs> did it revolt you? <laughs> I kind of wish I hadn't looked it up, but... <laughs> It's burned into my memory now, so thank you for that. But so just, just to go back to, to London for the moment, so the, the bulk of the book is set in a house in, in Judd Street. I yeah. know Judd Street from Judd Books, which is just around the corner from there now, that, that wonderful bookshop. But I wondered if you could say why particularly in the case of the child Cephalina, what was it about mid-19th century London and perhaps Suffolk in one episode of the, the novel that fascinated you? Well, the story had to be had to be in London, really, because um, I had already chosen my um, main character who speaks through the novel, Robert Grove. I had already chosen him. He had to be a journalist. Um, he was based on Henry Mayhew. So he's in London, you know, naturally. And spiritualism had just started really in earnest uh, a couple of years before that, in about 18, I think, 40, 49, by um, three women from America called the Fox Sisters. And they came out with this wonderful hoax where there were wrappings, spirit wrappings everywhere. Well, it was their, I think it was their, um, their toe joints they were engineering that with. Can you imagine um, the entirety of London from then on being absolutely awash with spiritualism? And what interested me is what was the desire that they had to pretend that that worked? I mean, pretend, believe, pretend. I, I never know which is actually accurate in any kind of cases, but, you know, they, they had a sort of overwhelming compulsion to think that spirits were amongst them. And I wanted to know what that was about. And I discovered a little bit about what it was about was with, the, with the men, people like um, Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm. They simply fell in love with um, the idea of purity um, and little spirit children and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. And fairies, you know, they believed in fairies still. So, yeah, I suppose it's important to say that this is something that seemed to attract quite a lot of well-educated and intellectual figures in the in the 19th yeah. century. Yeah. And were there were there particular figures you had in mind or that, in, that interested you who, who displayed fascination with, with spiritualism? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the probably writers of the same sort of material that I write, you know, writers of the weird. Um, I suspect a lot of those people would have perhaps fallen under the spell for spiritualism and believed it. But at the same time, you know, there were a few people, a magician in particular whose name I forget, who came from the north of England and who was saying to everybody, you know, in Britain, look, you know, this is all hoax, it's rubbish, it's not true. And he was trying to sort of say, he was showing people how you could make it look real, what you did to make it look real. And, and there was that awful stuff called exoplasm, and I, I think, yes. <laughs> I don't know whether you would rather not talk about that. Filthy human substance, isn't it? We can discuss ectoplasm <laughs> if you... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that we should. <laughs> 
there, there is also simultaneously, as you as you suggest, kind of backlash to it. Robert Browning comes to mind as this long poem, Mr. Sludge, the Medium. Oh, I don't know that. That sounds good. It's a, a kind of attempt to show uh, spiritualism for the hoax that it is. And that's one of the concerns of the child Cephalina, I suppose, that middle ground between belief and, yeah. uh, and skepticism. So, so for you, the germ of the story was that this figure of Henry Mayhew himself or did you know that you wanted something with a backdrop of spiritualism or how did the story come about if you don't mind revealing that detail? So, no, I don't mind at all. I mean, it was simply that question that, that I had been asking myself. It had been on my mind for a couple of years. You know, what, what was going on with the Victorian male that he he had to believe in in this kind of stuff? I mean, OK, people believed in God and everything and they were they were also um, atheists about. But um, I just was curious about why this whole phenomenon had arisen. I mean, apart from the Fox sisters making themselves very convincing, what was the need for it? And so I think I decided, well, let's have a look. If, you know, it's all fake, what would it be like if, in fact, we didn't quite know whether it was fake or not? So my book was kind of hinged on just that kind of notion, I think. I noticed that you also kept uh, an online writing diary during the mm. composition of, of this novel. That's available on your website, beccaloyd.org, if anybody wants to read that. I wondered what the motivation for you to, to keep that was and you know, if you noticed anything in, in keeping it that changed anything about your approach to writing. I wrote it simply as something I could use before the book was finished to kind of um, advertise its coming, really, because I, I put that diary up on my Facebook page quite a long time before the book itself was published, such that some people thought they'd already read the book, <laughs> <laughs> which is very, very mad. And of course not true, because in those snippets, I'm simply writing, oh, I didn't work very well today, or I mm. think I'll change so-and-so, or I'll do, you know, it's just notes to self, really. And I have no idea how interesting they really are to people, but I'm doing it also with the novel I'm writing now. I haven't put it up online. Do you prefer to remain slightly secretive about the content of your work before it? Yeah, I have never been secretive about my work, but about this book, I think I must be. Okay, yeah. I won't <laughs> ask you any, any further about it in I that case. I must be, yeah. um, but it is, it is quite interesting to watch your, your moods and relationship with, with the text fluctuate over time reading reading that diary it had not been my intention to write much more than a pamphlet to circulate amongst politicians about the conditions in which poor children in london live the diseases they get the awful and crowded dwelling places they huddle in and their lack of education and early deaths but alas i became haunted by the subject and could not leave it alone. And so I determined to write a book about it. I amassed crucial information of such a poignant nature about the lives of poor London youngsters that I believed wholeheartedly that even the most shallow-minded of those we call our leaders could not fail to be so moved by the facts that they were compelled to put all of their energies into solving the problems once and for all. London is a dire place to live, truth be told. I can only agree with Tetty Brandling about that. For if it is not the terrible poverty of many thousands of Londoners, then it is the stench of the Thames, a river that once was mighty and we called Father. Or it is the dirty, grit-filled fog that lingers for days at a time in the winter months. More fearful still are the epidemics of cholera that take so many helpless people to their deaths. The first stage is called influenza, I understand, then follows a rapid progression to full-blown cholera. And just four years ago, in the autumn of 1849, 14,137 people died within the space of a few weeks. At least that was the number reported in the newspapers. Therefore we know that in truth, it would have been many more. Let us imagine that you are a healthy man or woman able to make your way in London with enough to eat and a decent house in which to dwell. Well then, there is a further plague inflicted upon you in the form of constant and terrible noise. 
Never mind Ebast's idea that London fog can drive a body mad. The incessant din all around would do it faster and with more finality, I suspect. The mind can train itself to slough the sounds, for the most part, but there are times when the full horror floods back. So maybe we can say something about Henry Mayhew and perhaps then Robert Groves as as a way into the novel. So the model for your character is Henry Mayhew, the the author of London Labour and the London Poor, an enormously influential work of, I guess, uh, proto-sociology, would you call it? Yeah, I would. I would, I would. Yeah, is is his work very important to you or was it his figure that, that particularly fascinated you? All of it, really. I think his work is incredibly useful and has been I mean for so many different types of people certainly sociologists certainly anybody who has an interest in what London people were really like and it's the London um, working class people of course that's what it's about it's about how millions of people lived and um, he himself was such a flawed character because he kept getting into debt and stuff like that and I I like that. I like his fragility in that in that sense, you know. So my Robert Groves is a person like that. He's aware of himself as being, you know, m- much very much an outsider mm. um, in London and in society. Henry Mayhew, for that book, interviewed all manner of people, working class people living in, in London, from pickpockets to butchers, tanners, uh, whatever it may, may have been. And I was quite interested in perhaps some of the complexities of the class relationships in in your novel robert groves perhaps he isn't such a conventional gentleman we might say given his his line of work and his attitude to the working classes and he also lives in a, a house that's become a bit of a cultural menagerie in terms of class so we have tetty his housekeeper with whom he has a fairly relaxed relationship she's she's from rural sussex there is also the boy ebast who is a cockney street urchin we, we might say so there is quite a large divide in the class landscape of that house i wondered why you chose to organize it like that and what interested you about those those class relationships perhaps the class relationships in england exist don't mm, they they do yeah they just exist. Yeah, and they are. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> they're one of those strange things about living in Warsaw. I live outside of the the UK now. Is that yeah. suddenly when I meet another person, we're not doing those micro calculations and listening mm. to each other's voices and to determine yeah. precisely what what kind of background do you have. You know, we're often yeah. wrong about that when we when we do it to each other in England, but it does mm. happen. I think. Mm. That's right. It's nice to be yeah. divorced from it, but yes, yeah, it is exactly. a, it is ever present. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you think about someone like Virginia Woolf and her very um, you know upper class snobby kind of setup, you know, and all her her friends, I and mean, she's awfully cruel to Catherine Mansfield, who she she thought of as a kind of um, smelling like a civet cat, you know. Yeah. Actually, she was terribly jealous of her be- of Mansfield's beautiful writing, but she needed to kind of put her down class-wise, and she does that with servants and other thing- other people as well. And it's actually why I don't like her. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I've I've found that is an issue for me with mm. with Virginia Woolf. Actually, she's also quite anti-Semitic too. I think she refers to Isaiah Berlin as that that awful Jew at one point mm-hmm. in her diaries. Uh, not exactly. the most no. amiable of characters it seems well, no precisely so so i don't uh, you know i don't have a lot of patience or empathy with her writing as a consequence of that mm. but people like mayhew if he really was and he was um interviewing kids and understanding about what was really going on in london then that that makes him into a, a good man mm. for t- taking the trouble to look at those things and care about those things enough and therefore, if you were someone, say like my Robert Groves in the, the Child Cephalina, of, of that type, you, you might well have, um, so you've got to have, you know, you can't cook your own food, you're a man. So you've got to have a woman in there to do it for you. <laughs> and so she's, she's got to be tetty, you know, she's got to be that great big woman who can 
frighten off people at the door who who are uh, you know asking for money that 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 the that household twelve Judd Street owes and blah blah blah. Mm. So she's got to be big like that, and she also had to be she had to come from a superstitious background because that's really important in the story, is it not? Yeah, it's absolutely. her, if you like, you know, who drags this story along. It's actually Tetty that drags the story along. She's a very powerful figure in the in the book i mm. think perhaps even the one who is really who's really in charge in that in that household uh, yeah you know indeed robert groves yeah. seems quite uh quite frightened by her at times or scared of revealing yeah. information to her he, he 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 is i mean he's terrified of he, he becomes quickly terrified of his relationship with cephalina because he knew right from the beginning that tetty uh, found her moilsome or found her irksome or Mm. didn't like her or whatever was going on with that and you have to read that through the book don't you and he then became awfully afraid of her you know because he 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 was compelled to do things for Cephalina and yet if Tetty were to spy the child in the house you know there there could be all sorts of trouble and she manages to make make things difficult for for Robert because when she's really angry with him down in the kitchen she does things like slam doors and drop pots make noise on yes. purpose to annoy him but e- even within that relationship there's perhaps a bit of a reversal in in, t- in terms of who is in charge you know his robert groves's brother criticizes him explicitly for not having his servants in order and taking advice or or commands even from his servants and yeah. that seemed to me quite unconventional but there are also sort of ironies or further complexities in that although he's very unconventional in his approach to the working class and and that he gathers these street children to feed and then and then interview uh, in other ways, he seems very strikingly fixed in his class habits and very concerned that Ebast, for instance, should cultivate certain forms of etiquette and, and behavior and aspire to a more gentlemanly mode of, of behavior. So mm-hmm. I think he's a complex figure in that sense. I found that rather sympathetic. You know, I think that building up characters, you have to be able to put in the contradictions, otherwise the characters aren't three-dimensional in, in novels. Mm-hmm. Your characters have got to be really fully blown, and it doesn't matter whether one thing conflicts with another thing. In Because I'm like that, surely. Are you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. There you are, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, Ebast is a little thief. Yes. Ebast is sto- stealing things. Mm. And he's he's got something in his room that he gets into big trouble about. I won't say what it is. That's right. Yeah. If you remember, then what we see about Ebast is his uh, his, his his beauty actually, mm. in the face of his you know his life and everything. We see his beauty. We see his tenderness. She had taken a step or two away from me, and was fiddling with the oval buttons on her coat. I noticed then how very intriguing her face was, exceedingly beautiful but very puzzling. Her dark eyes shone or became dull and full of depth in quick succession so that the beholder could never quite be sure there was a readable expression within them. Over all the time yet to come in which I slowly became acquainted with the child, her eyes always unsettled me. It seemed that they held candour and secrecy with equal ease. Her left eye was slightly differently shaped to the perfect other, which meant when hunting her face, you glazed first at the left and then at the right eye and settled there. Her lips were those of a fully grown woman, but why I say that I cannot explain. Her nose was not overly pretty, and yet it was one that caused fondness in the beholder, had you wanting to run your finger lightly down to its tip. Most endearing, perhaps, was the shape of her face, perfectly oval and angelic. Her skin was fair and subtly freckled, giving her the look of a fresh country girl. I have mentioned the scar to you already, the only spoiling element about her face. It went through the corner of her mouth on the right-hand side upwards into her soft skin about one quarter of an inch. When she became agitated, she bit into her upper lip, causing the scar to whiten 
and show itself more acutely. The titular character, Sefanino, is also very much the focus of the novel, and she is a child, a young girl, very presentable, and has the manners of a, of a girl of the, of the upper class as well. But within her, there seem to be aspects that go a little way beyond what a young girl might be expected to possess. Mm-hmm. You make her seem uncanny very effectively, I, I think. And, and I wondered if I could ask you what it is about this combination of the childlike and the adult that we, we find so uncanny or creepy what attracted you to that as a conceit perhaps she's got a role in the story how do you create a kid like that i mean if you read the story and you know what happens in the end you can see why she would be that way i mean Mm. it's not so much an attraction to it was me trying to discover how i could draw her And, and actually it has to be a very fine balance between her innocence and her her knowledge, her knowingness, her knowingness, you know. Mm. I mean, that's the thing that trips Robert up completely, is her knowingness, you know. Because nobody knows where the child came from. She lives in uh, Hackney with um, a couple of people who are her guardians, but we don't know where she came from before that. don't really know what she is. But uh, it's the knowingness that Robert uh, gets confused by, because he, he's a Victorian man. He, he, he wants her to be innocent. That's what men like about girl children, their innocence. Do you think it is limited to that in Robert, though? I mean, there are, at times, almost sexually suggestive mannerisms or attitudes in, in Cephalina, and I, I suppose that's a taboo that underpins a lot of the discomfort within the child Cephalina. There's even a fantastically drawn and very difficult conversation between Groves and his friend Hoodie, mm. where the subject of this over-eager interest in young girls is, is brought up. You are hedging with me, Robert. What is the question you really want to ask? It was pointless to protest. Hoodie knew me well enough to sense that I was not being forthright with him. Well, I have heard that sometimes two girls form a powerful bond with each other, almost as if they were practicing for the future when they are expected to find husbands. Hoodie laughed and mopped at his brow. Oh yes, I have seen plenty of young girls in love with each other. And, can I ask you this, have young girls ever, well, become overly attached to you personally? He thought for a moment and became very serious. I glanced at him and there was the faintest trace of some old misery in his expression, if I was not mistaken. In my case, it tended to happen the other way about. Just occasionally, I would encounter... Hoodie, have I led you into a dark place you would rather not be in, I murmured. Because if so, let us walk to our coffee shop and occupy our minds with cheerful thoughts. He roused himself from his gloom and laughed. It was a very indiscreet question you asked me, Groves. That is all. Now, as your friend, I feel duty-bound to answer it to the best of my ability. There was a particular young girl who had been in one of my classes for some time before I came to notice her. There was nothing very striking about her, to be sure, and no reason why I should have noticed her. But once I had seen her, and I mean truly seen her, I found myself, much against my will, very drawn to her. I cannot explain it. She was angelic. I did not propel myself into the curious longing I felt for her. I did not seek to have such a current of feeling run through me at the very sight of her. Believe me, Robert, I did not. Yet without my even being fully aware of it, it happened to me. Good heavens, man. I had no idea. What was the outcome? I thought of her constantly, 
My ability to concentrate on the ordinary matters of the day evaporated. I was truly haunted by the girl. And how was she with you? I asked, and I found that my heart had quickened in my anxiety to hear his answer. Oh goodness, Robert, she knew nothing about it at all. She did not desire to be near you constantly, Hoodie laughed. She was just a child of nine, and she behaved like one. There was nothing knowing about her. And what happened, if I may ask? I applied for a transfer to a neighbouring school, so that I need not encounter her further. And when I settled into my new position, thoughts of her began to fade immediately. What you describe is certainly strange, Hoodie. It sounds like a curious mental aberration, a storm of passions which arises and develops before there is a chance for the one afflicted to gain mastery over it. That describes it well, Groves. It was as if God had suddenly imbued me with the powerful feelings of an overly devoted father. I wanted to protect her against everything that could annoy her, from puddles of water on the road to fallen winter leaves. We stood up and brushed our jackets down. The air was full of grit, and some flying ants that we had not noticed were above us in a crowd. I could not entirely equate my experience of the child Cephalina with what Hoodie had told me. My fondness for the girl at first seemed a gentle thing by comparison, but my meetings with her had been brief and I was struck suddenly as we walked over the Regent's Canal by the horrible thought that the extent of feeling might be dependent on the amount of exposure and that if such was the case, it would be best if I was not to lay eyes upon her ever again. In particular, my experience did mirror hoodies. I thought of Cephalina constantly, but I had not been aware of the intensity of the feeling until that very moment and my recognition of the fact sent a distinct shiver through my body. I was fascinated by this this aspect of the book, but it is very much a, a taboo, and I wondered what made you want to explore that as an idea in the text. Well, I mean, that's part of the story. It's just an intrinsic part of the story that I'm trying to tell. Because if you think that Victorian men, men like uh, Conan Doyle and so forth, were fascinated by young mediums dressed in frilly white things or spirit children who appeared out of cabinets, all of that. If what they're fascinated in in those children is that is their wonderful purity, they're, they're pure because they're not even they're not even properly human, are they, you know? Then that's what I was trying to sort of conjure up in the child herself. I mean the child herself has to be nothing can be clear about her. And, and that's what happens. So it's a kind of tightrope between one part of her and another part of her. You see, I have left it to the reader to decide the real nature of his interest in that child. Mm. I haven't written it in and I haven't written it out. Mm -hmm. I, just, <laughs> I just left it. <laughs> and I mean, that, that was actually one of the hardest things to do in that book, was to get the balance right, to get the slight suggestion and then the, oh, no, it's not true. Mm. I mean, even, even people who've read it or, or um, critiqued the book or reviewed it one woman had said um oh well the writer couldn't possibly have meant it i must have invented it myself but i think you know this seems like pedophilia to me mm -hmm. and i thought yeah bravo why can't the writer have why can't the writer have said it you know <laughs> and then someone else made the comment oh my goodness it was a woman who wrote this book you know so, i mean we we should be able to explore these things it's never decided upon at any point throughout the novel precisely what the nature of that interest is you're, you're right but there are fairly open discussions of it and I think Robert Groves is quite frightened or distressed by what he might regard as a sort of burgeoning sexual interest. It certainly gives him a, a degree of anxiety. I found that really fascinating as it seemed to me a huge part of not only what was seductive in, in terms of the child's fascination for, for Robert but also her growing control over him and yeah. the way that he essentially becomes a kind of puppet to whims that she has brought about in him 
so there, there's a real crossover between that sexual interest and the potentially supernatural as- aspects of that child. The meeting point between them is, is really fascinating. But it's true to say that in Victorian times, you know, unmarried men who would perhaps be hanging around and you in sort of groups of married, their married friends and their brothers and so forth, who might have children, were allowed to have really quite close relationships with, with young girls. And nobody looked at that and thought, aha, the paedophilia idea is very, very modern. Mm. And that's not to say it doesn't happen, because we know it does, and it's absolutely vile. And, uh, and I'm not in any sense promoting anything like that. No, of book, course. But, but, but I have to play with it, because it's what we know. Mm. Not true to say they didn't know it, but it was so hidden then, it was so very hidden. And there were all these other men who were totally innocent of that, you know, like um, Alice Liddell's friend in Oxford, whose name was, who wrote that book? Um, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, Lewis Carroll. Yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lewis Carroll is someone that came to mind. But Robert, your character does seem anxious not to be regarded in those terms by anyone who might see him in the company of this child. Yeah, Um, that's that's right. well, that's why he, he goes to speak to Hoodie, who he knew had a sort of an intense relationship with a young girl, because I think Hoodie had been um, a teacher at one point or something of the sort. And then, but Hoodie, in fact, had, was doing journalism as well. But he discovers that it was the child herself who had, had, had become obsessed by Hoodie not mm. hoodie, obsessed by the child. So I just did that on purpose to confuse things even further. It's just more squid zinc that I put into it. <laughs> Speaking of squid ink and the aquatic, the word coming to mind for me in terms of cephalina, when I, before I learned the pronunciation of it that you told me, um, I was always yeah. thinking of cephalopods and I was yes, expecting exactly. indeed some Lovecraftian element in, in her because there's a moment when, it's a wonderful moment in the book actually when you describe Robert Grove sitting in a bench next to Cephalina and an image comes to mind of a sea anemone and uh, and a fish struggling together and I yeah. thought to myself ah here we, here we go here comes the tentacular aspect of this but yeah. uh, it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's not but except the word uh, Cephalina is is a word in biology I mean it is there if you look it up you'll find it is it a plant? A plant in Africa I, you know, or something I'm, like I, that? I am not actually quite sure what it is. I thought I read that it was a kind of a parasite of, of some kind. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I made the word up, but you know how you make things up and then later discover that you haven't made them up at all? <laughs> they've always been there and you just think you've made them up. Yeah. I think it was one of those. Words like ebast, I mean, those come into my head when they're needed and, and I put them down and either later on I think what a terrible word take it out or I, I leave it there <laughs> <laughs> for what it's worth I love the names in this book and, and the name Cephalina is very evocative for me somehow with all of those associations but it also has a ghostly airiness to it yeah. as well um, yeah so in, does, in terms of pure does, sound yeah. I, I love it yeah it does you're right I mean it, it, it fits and I think that Victoria were quite keen on having very odd names from time to time. Men and women, I I believe. She gazed at me and pulled on her lip, whitening her scar. Are you going to tell Mrs. Brandling and that boy about spending the day with me? No, absolutely not. Nor am I going to tell anyone in my house, she replied. You are my special secret. You are my sweetheart. As curious as this may sound, as she spoke, the image of a pale sea enemy clasping in its frail tentacles a small inert fish surged into my mind and vanished as quickly and on thinking back, I realized that this was the moment when I became truly helpless within Cephalina's thrall. I began instantly to protest, as you can well imagine. No, no, I said, that is a wrong thing to say. And I stopped talking abruptly as her eyes welled up with tears. I looked around to make sure we were not being observed, and I must say that I felt wildly out of control of the situation. Please do not weep, Cephalina. Perhaps you did not know that it was a mistaken thing to say. Perhaps I am a foolish old man to think you should have known. I added. Why did you get angry with me? She asked, when she had blotted her tears on the ribbons of her hat. Well, 
It is wrong to call me your sweetheart, not polite, I whispered. We mustn't tell those we know that we have been together today, on my part because Mrs. Brandling would consider it incorrect that I show special interest in any one child, and in your case, because your guardians have not met me, and they may very well not approve of our friendship. They may seize on the idea that I do not have your best interests at heart. Do you understand, Cephalina? She shrugged. No, not really. People should be allowed to have the friends they want. Anyway, you call me nice things like angels sometimes. Why can I not do the same for you? If I recall correctly, I felt absolutely melancholy at that moment. Well, maybe things would be different if we lived in a perfect world, I replied. So let us now conclude. Please remember, you must not call me sweetheart, or any affectionate names of that sort whatsoever. She shrugged her shoulders and shivered a little. As you please, Mr. Groves. I will not call you anything at all if you do not want me to. But I call my sister sweetheart when she is being nice to me and she likes it. The sister again. And what do you call her when she is not being nice? I asked. Cephalina flushed. I call her monster or barbarian, especially when she tries to throw her head at me. Throw her head? You mean become angry? No, it is me who gets angry with her, and that is because she torments me sometimes. I think she would like to be without me, but it is impossible. She must put up with me, and I must put up with her, because she is my shade body. What curious and stupid nonsense you talk, Cephalina. If we are to be friends, you must not make things up. On impulse, I bent my head and kissed the ribbon on her wrist to give the ceremony more drama and majesty, and Cephalina, smiling now, did the same to me. When she lifted her head again, I found it perfectly heartbreaking to look at her exquisite face and see it streaked with fresh tears. As she replaced her hat, I opened my arms and gestured for her to come to me. So, she sat close beside me on the bench and laid her head upon my chest. I reached beneath her chin and undid the ribbons and removed the awkward hat once more so that she could lie more comfortably upon me, and then I put my arms around her firmly. We stayed for some five minutes before either of us stirred and that simple moment of physical contact strengthened our bond immeasurably, and for the first time I felt a keening horror at the decision I had taken in my life, not to marry and have children, and live in the conventional way so celebrated by my unimaginative brother. I was I was also curious about potentially some inspirations or or influences on on that figure. I, I told you that it brought to mind for me that Cephalina brought to, to mind for me perhaps the children in the Turn of the Screw by Henry James, and I also mentioned this story Miriam by Truman Capote, which yeah. it turned out you hadn't hadn't read, but no, I found no. um, strong similarities between yeah. them. But was there an inspiration point for that or uh, were you interested in other depictions of children on this border between adulthood? and Not in, not in the slightest degree. But I mean, I had decided to write about spiritualism and uh, Victorian man's, men's fascination with it. Yeah. That's, so that's the hub of the story. So in a context like that, then you, your women must come in along with their ectoplasm if necessary. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> women come into the picture. And uh, in that picture must be this child figure. Mm. because it's you know all kind of hangs on that even things like victorian men's belief still in fairies a fairy is a sort of childlike thing isn't it well it's not actually 
real fairies. I mean, they're vicious, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> they were in the 1930s, <laughs> a bit like that in, uh, you know, in whatever that book, that famous book is called, whose name I've forgotten now. And here's a good example of what people do. There was a photographer who had a couple of daughters and they lived I think somewhere in the north and by there at the bottom of the garden is a little babbly babbly little spring and the two girls two sisters came out with the idea that there were fairies down there and they took photographs of them 1930s about it became great news in the newspapers I mean people were always talking about them it was a long long time before they confessed that it was a fraud and that their dad had, uh, I think, um, created these photos of these these fairies in little 1930s dresses. But before that, I think it could have been Conan Doyle who took them up seriously and was terribly, terribly interested in discovering Cottingley. Cottingley fairies, that's right, the village of Cottingley. So for you, it was not a literary influence, but something from the, the world of spiritualism that helped you forge Zephyrina as a, as a character then? Well, yes, because I don't consciously have literary influences because I'm not interested in repeating anyone else's work sure so there might be situations in which you know evidently something is you know if I had read the story called Miriam written by uh, what's his name again Truman Capote yeah when he was about 20 as well yeah you, very can, young you can tell you can tell <laughs> If I, well, anyway, I hadn't read it. I'm never really looking at my, uh, either at my contemporary writers or any of the writers that I particularly read or, or like very much. So that doesn't come into it. It's just, I have to have that figure in the story because that was the story I was writing. I don't need to be influenced by literature. I need to be influenced by the remarkable nature of human beings. But what I need from literature or from reading is the information, the actual knowledge, because I think it was true in Cephalina and it's true in the book that I'm writing now, which the book I'm writing now is set in uh, 1700, so it's even further back, early Georgian, and it's painful to find every single detail that you need because you have to examine everything you've written and you have to say, would they have said it? Would they have done it? Could they have had that? How would they have explored that? And it's absolutely tedious, but I like it because it's totally challenging. And Cephalina was also like that. I had to learn as much as I could about mid-Victorian life, so I read everything that came my way that was needful. But that stuff isn't an influence on my creative writing. It's simply I need it in order to get the setting right. You talked about the question of uh, would they have said that precisely? Are you are you interested in that degree of fidelity to your historical yeah. period? replicating speech patterns of the time and things like that yeah i'm absolutely committed to it um, and it's a madness because sometimes you simply can't do it but i've got a way out if i can't actually find the real facts i just will then say okay this is fiction you're allowed to make it fictional and i create something fictional and so if i were challenged about something i'd written that was happening in a particular year way back in history i'd be able to say well normally speaking in other cases in 1720 or whatever it might be this might not have happened but but in my book with my people well it just did because I just wrote it you know <laughs> it's fiction I've heard the writer David Mitchell of whom I'm, I'm not enormously fond but have enjoyed a book or two talk about that principle of keeping the degree of research that you undertake below the surface of your fiction so that the, the weight of that knowledge is there but it's mm. not always protruding and um, Inter- yeah. disrupting the narrative I suppose. Uh, Do you find that balance quite challenging or interesting to uphold? Well, it's the kind of thing that I would ask myself in a second um, edit, when I'm doing an edit, when I get to editing stage, a second or third edit, whatever it might be, I, I would be asking that kind of question. And if I think something looks a bit stiff, because it's trying to look at the historical thing, I might have to fling it out or change it. I, I know it is an issue. He's right about that. But that's a man. That's a man who wrote a book where there was a great big gap in the middle. Was it? Was it the one about clouds? Uh, Cloud Atlas. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's set over three or four centuries into the future as well. Yeah. You're not going to believe it, but when I read that book and I got to that point, I thought that I had a defective book from from the bookshop. You know, and that there were some pages missing out of my copy. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think that's precisely what he would have wanted so uh, all right <laughs> I certainly would have pleased him there then 
he he also talks about dialogue and being very careful that it doesn't turn into Blackadder. Oh know, yeah, try and over <laughs> my, my liege, my liege, my you know yes or, or nay, uh, nay, sister. Yeah, God, I have to be terribly careful of that sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, at the moment, I'm using um, I'm relying on dear Daniel Defoe, whose writing I really love. He's such a good man because he's writing in exactly the time that I am writing this particular novel in. So I'm able to see some of the ways that he talks, you know. It's good for mine, mining those structures. And, oh, totally, and, yeah. Yeah, 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 wonderful. Yeah. I did want to ask you about your reading habits and your interest in general in, I suppose, the weird or, or horror fiction. You know, are there writers who have been particularly important to you or writers whom you think others should read? I never know how you can ever recommend something unless you know the person you're, re- you're recommending it to and everything that they like, because people may simply not like what I like. With those people out of your mind, I mean, for yourself, who, who is important to you? Well, uh, Walter de la Mer, very important, beautiful, elegant writer, sometimes almost, it's sometimes difficult to understand, but just wonderful. Horror, if you like, is a huge, huge world. Horror writing's a huge world, and at one end you've got people like Lovecraft, you know, I have very little interest there, although I've written a story about him, I'm Oh, you have? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I did. I wrote, I wrote a story about what his childhood might have been like. But anyway, so there, there, there are all kinds of people like that. But then there, there are some other people like I don't know Robert Louis Stevenson or, or um, Walter de la Mer, people of that sort. And then there's Robert Eichmann later on. You know, within our lifetimes, he's he's, he's wonderful. I think. Yeah, but I don't know that I read very many novels or short stories. I read a lot of non-fiction material. Mm. I'm usually looking at just information about what belongs in whatever it is I'm writing at the moment so that takes a long time I'm never really much in a position where I can just sit down with a novel a novel that I really liked um, and I'll tell you the name of this wonderful woman if I've got it Bonnie Nadzam she wrote something called Lamb Bonnie Nadzam and I don't know what else she's written after that she's only a young woman but if you were interested in reading anything about relationship between an adult man and a, a child it's fascinating she does it really well. Oh, this is completely new to me. Mm. So that that sounds very interesting. This is outside of the world of horror and the weird. No, no, because I mean I think most things are within the world of the horror and the weird. I mean her novel about these two characters is definitely uh, utterly weird. But you know, I mean she's not a figure. She's not a writer within the kind of family of writers that that I well actually don't belong to, but <laughs> hang around on the edge of. <laughs> not exactly in the sense of them either <laughs> well I, I think you've got quite a sensible approach there and it seems to have allowed you to forge your own voice within this genre and um, yeah. reading the child cephalina gave me enormous pleasure so I, I, I recommend it to everyone listening to this and i hope people will go out and pick up a copy so I'll, I'll just thank you so much for joining us becca it was a pleasure to talk to you yes likewise We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherds Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for us, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps our visibility. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.